Welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And this week we are continuing the 1938 nominees with the first non-English foreign language, I don't really know how to define this, film ever nominated for Best Picture, La Grande Illusion, or as we are going to call it so we don't have to speak French, The Grand Illusion. Yes. So David, what did you think of this? I was kind of amazed by it visually. Genuinely, long stretches of this movie, if you told me it was made in the 80s as like a black and white art film, I would believe you, except the music cues are still super 30s. <laughs> but the lighting, the camera work, the acting all feel way more modern than any movie we've watched. Oh, yeah, I would definitely agree. Even the dialogue. Yeah. Like, it's very cool. It, it has that kind of French film feeling to it where it's very detached and everyone is trying very hard to be clever and succeeding. Which sort of like, I wouldn't say obscures the emotion of it, but it doesn't do what a lot of 1930s and even 20s Hollywood does, where everybody's heart is on their sleeve, sentimentality is really the modus operandi for most of the movies that we've watched, and this is not that at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, openly sentimental, there are no, there's maybe one scene in the entire movie, but there's a lot about privately being sentimental in this movie in a way that, again, feels very modern and not like the movies we've watched. Yeah, I, I, I loved it. <laughs> like, spoilers, I, I definitely have some issues with it that we will get into, but about I don't know, 25 minutes into it, I paused it and went to make popcorn because I was like, I don't need to take notes for this. I'm totally engaged. And I just want to like kick back and actually enjoy a movie. And it has subtitles. And I still was like, nope, popcorn film. I think I in a good way. I think I liked it more than I was engaged by it a little bit, which I think is a little bit different than how you reacted to it. But, like, I really liked it. I mean, it definitely is so far up my alley that it's in my house. I love French New Wave, and that was, like, my whole thing when I was in my 20s. And this is so obviously influential for that group that it was exciting for me to watch that and go, like, oh, this is where a lot of that came from. Like, even the editing very much... Yeah. Proceeds and sort of sets the idea for like the jump cuts that the French New Wave invented. Yeah, there's a lot of very not 30s jump cuts in this that are actually kind of wild, like made me go to the Wikipedia page and go like, maybe they just like lost some reel of this in a fire or something. Because there's a couple of just like mid sound cue jump cuts. It's not perfect in that way. And that is really where the French New Wave fixed it was like, yeah, we can use these, but like, let's not make it feel like <laughs> like we lost a few frames or a half a reel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think they all work, but I just thought from like a 1937 standpoint, like, no, 
am I sure they did that on purpose? <laughs> right. Because I've never seen a movie even try and do something like that so far. I mean, the big one I'm thinking of is the right toward the end of the movie where you have the maybe only openly sentimental scene in the whole film, which is the Christmas scene that then goes into Marshall and the German woman hooking up. And there's big, swelling, romantic music, and it's gone next morning. Right. Like, like in the middle of a measure <laughs> of the music. Yeah. Like, there's not even, oh, let's finish the four count. <laughs> and, like, in the context of the film, that's really, really, really smart. But in the context of the films of 1937 and 38, I'm like, did somebody break something? <laughs> Right? Yeah. yeah. No, it definitely had that disorienting feeling when we have gotten so used to the way that movies are made at this time. We should go through the plot. Yes. This is a real throwback to black and white movies in the podcast in that the plot's kind of a weird one, and it's kind of meandering, but in an interesting French New Wavy kind of way. Yeah, it's always understandable. It's just that it's not your, like, open and shut, three-act, here are the beats for... A story standard. And unlike a lot of the movies we've watched, I think the kind of meandering, it never really comes together structure is on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But the movie follows two French officers who are shot down by Germany during the First World War. There's a brief scene where they meet a character who comes back later named Rittenmeister von Raufenstein might notice from that name, he's German. <laughs> uh, yeah. Who is exceedingly polite to them, even though they are enemy combatants, to the degree that you kind of think maybe this is going to be a comedy of manners film. And it kind of is for like 20 minutes. The two officers are uh, Captain Baudieu, who is this like incredibly handsome, very sleek, almost like Clark Gable when Clark Gable isn't screaming type. He's literally an aristocrat, and Lieutenant Marshall, who is big and blonde, and uh, he's a mechanic, but, you know, he's a lieutenant in the war because they need that, but he is working class. Yeah. And they literally have a dinner for them when they are shot down and captured. And then they pull out a big <laughs> flower garland thing about shooting down of, of French airmen. And the German officer apologizes for how terribly gauche it was for that to appear during the dinner. <laughs> it is very funny, but even within the film, it is supposed to be kind of weird. Marshall kind of thinks it is weird. Then they're taken to a prisoner of war camp, where again, there's kind of this high class comedy of manners thing, as they all dine with a rich Jewish POW, who's also a French POW, but he's Jewish, named Rosenthal. And then it kind of becomes an escape movie, but like very purposefully just sort of lightly drifts into being an escape movie. There's no big dramatic turn toward it. They pull up the floorboards in their, uh, I guess you would call it a barrack. Yeah. Because there's like six of them or something who are living in it together. And nightly they're digging everything up with whatever they have and they've buried the dirt under the other floorboards. But now they've gotten to the point where they have to take it out into the courtyard when they are given exercise and like dump it out of their pockets, essentially. Which if this sounds like the plot of The Great Escape, that is not 
an accident because it definitely inspired that. <laughs> yes. But unlike The Great Escape, after sort of spending some time dealing with digging this tunnel and also spending some time in the POW camp and like there's a, a side plot about them putting on a show, like a theatrical show in the camp mm -hmm. that mixes with a side plot about the Battle of Verdun that's about the essentially caustic nature of war, basically, as this one fort keeps changing sides over and over. And everybody cheers, even though from an outside historical perspective, you know, this is an almost utterly meaningless event. <laughs> Who controls that fort is like playing capture the flag. It changes day by day. Yeah. It's interesting because they put up a notice and the notice is both in German and in French. And so it's, you know, Fort Duemont is taken by the Germans and then all the French prisoners of war are like kind of demoralized by this. And then during the show, which is this very vaudevillian slash can-can cabaret thing. The British POWs are literally dancing to It's a Long Way to Temporary. <laughs> yes. And someone announces that the French have recaptured it. And everyone starts singing the Marseillaise basically to like piss off the Germans and to sh show that they still feel their patriotic Frenchness or their allies' Frenchness in the midst of being prisoners of war, which also was totally lifted for Casablanca. <laughs> then there's a bit of a drama about whether Marshall, who's the one who did the big announcement and sort of started the riot from the German point of view, is going to make it out of solitary before they all have to escape through this tunnel. And he does make it out, but then just before they can put the escape plan into motion, they're all transferred to other camps. And the whole thing was futile to the point where Marshall tries to run out and tell one of the new incoming prisoners about the tunnel, but they're British and don't speak French and think he's like a beggar or something. Crazy. And wave him away, which is really smart. This whole movie is really smart. What's really lovely about that too, and is so the opposite of every 1930s film, is you have, what, like 30, 40 minutes of the movie that while other things are definitely happening and there's some really beautiful scenes that don't involve it, the whole point of this part of the movie is the digging of the tunnel and the escape plan, and then it absolutely comes to nothing. Yeah. Which is a decidedly, like, nihilist perspective. Well, I mean... I I don't even think it's full-on nihilist, because I think the point is all the other stuff the soldiers were doing is actually the point. But any other war movie, and even the soldiers within this war movie, believe the point is escaping. Believe the point is the big escape plan, and not the big musical number they all put on. <laughs> right, and not the ways in which they are making each other's lives easier. Like, for instance... The French are receiving packages from back home, which the Germans give to them because that way they don't have to feed them. And Rosenthal is getting these packages with like cognac and foie gras and all <laughs> sorts of like really quite delicious foods that could at least be shipped. And he shares them with everyone. And that begins a lot of conversation around the stereotype of wealthy Jews being greedy and hoarding their resources, when in actuality, he's quite generous. And he is proud of the fact that his family has been raised to some prominence. And there's a part where he talks to Baudieu and he says, yeah, we aren't aristocrats, but we own three of your castles now and your aristocracy owns what? <laughs> Yeah. 
But it's not mean. It's just like, you know, look, this prejudice is unwarranted to think that we're worthless. This movie handles anti-Semitism so much smarter than all the movies about anti-Semitism we've watched, because one, it admits anti-Semitism exists. And in fact, <laughs> yeah, at least one of our two leads is anti-Semitic. Marshall is pretty openly like, you're one of the good ones, Rosenthal. <laughs> and then whenever he snaps at him, calls him a dirty Jew. Like, is extremely anti-Semitic. In general, the way that this movie handles race is very realistic, but is making the point that what is real is not good. That even though Marshall is one of our heroes, that his anti-Semitism humanizes him from being angelic, but also is a thing that we don't like about him and are not supposed to like about him. Sort of the big villain moment for von Raufenstein is him making it very clear that he thinks Jewish people and working class people are beneath him. Right, like even though they're officers, that it's war that has raised them to this level and that they're not worthy of even being in the officer POW camp, but they have to be because they're officers. Right, so there's an extremely proto-French New Wave montage of them being moved from camp to camp for a while that is basically that one Spike Jones video for Right, the, it's Star, Star Guitar. Guitar. I totally thought that. And it's not, that's not Spike Jones. That's, oh, uh, who is that? Uh, Gondry. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so obviously Michelle Gondry like watched this and went, oh, we could make a video of that. <laughs> yeah. But they get transferred to a supposedly escape proof POW camp in this like gorgeous old castle that is being run by von Raufenstein, who by this point has been badly burned. We learned this a little ways in over almost all of his body and promoted away from the front lines. And he immediately tries to strike up this like weird connection with Boldu over them both being aristocrats, despite being on opposite sides. And they play it as him being very openly and understandably lonely. Um, he really does believe that there is this like connection among equals there, even though within the situation, that's impossible. Like he, that can't happen. Yeah. This part has a lot of very beautiful scenes between Boldu and Ralphenstein, where they sort of talk about being in the aristocracy, and really there's just a lot of scenes that are openly about class, mm -hmm. and about class being extremely complicated. There's a whole scene where they talk about what <laughs> diseases they should be dying of, given their different class backgrounds, versus being united across class lines by being in this POW camp. <laughs> That's extremely funny. <laughs> That's the funny part of it. And then the bit with Rothenstein is very... Or Rothenstein. Wait, which way do we spell it? So I know how I'm saying it correctly. Rothenstein is very poignant and is also really, I think, the thesis of the film. Because Rothenstein is arguing that just by virtue of being aristocratic, that Bourdieu is worth more than Rosenthal and Marshall. And Bourdieu is saying, our time has passed. Aristocracy is not important anymore. We actually are worth less. We just have titles. 
And it's time for us to sacrifice that privilege. I don't know. I think even larger than that, I think Bourdieu isn't even saying it's time for that. I think he's just saying that's what's happening. Yeah. Like changes change. It isn't even that he is arguing against Raufenstein's position that there is like a tragedy to this change and they're losing this thing they should have. It's just he's arguing like, yeah, but like change. Things change. You know, we keep saying nihilistic, but I don't think this movie is nihilistic so much as it... I mean, it is about how all of these things you're watching are essentially pointless, but it is not about how that pointlessness is a tragedy. (laughs) It's about how that pointlessness is actually okay. Sort of the ridiculous thing is trying to put some kind of a structure and meaning and grand story on top of this stuff instead of just embracing just being with other people and going like, I am just randomly in this room with these people. It's more kind of like the positive existentialism of Camus, like in the myth of Sisyphus where he talks about like the only real question is whether or not to kill oneself because life has no meaning. But that that's actually quite freeing because then you can put whatever meaning that you want onto it without having it pressed upon you. And that in this, the grand illusion is the nationalism and the reason for the war and the aristocracy being better than anyone else. Also, the idea that Jews are somehow inferior. Like, these are all illusions that have been put onto people and you can be free from them. If you want. A very specific thing this movie does that I love is reference the title multiple times for different things. Yeah, yeah. That people will say, no, that's just an allusion to a lot of stuff. And all of them work. Um, And so there is no big moment of, and that's the grand illusion. (laughs) Which happens a lot when people reference the title in a movie. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And instead, it's like, Marshall will say like, Ah, we shouldn't even bother building the tunnel. The war is going to be over in a couple of weeks. A thing that I love about that is that's early enough in the film. You don't actually know when in World War One you are. You know you're in this movie, so he's almost certainly wrong. But like, you don't actually know. <laughs> right, right. How many weeks out is it? <laughs> yeah, that is one of the things that I really like is that they frequently make that of like, you know, oh, by the time that we do this, the war will be over or whatever. And because we have no time frame, I think it actually works even better because it gives you the nebulous sense that the entirety of this war, people thought that it was going to be over quite soon because no war had ever gone on for this long. Not continuously. Yes, not continuously and like with this level of casualties. I guess we should get back to the plot. Oh, right, right, right. That. (laughs) That old chestnut. Rosenthal had gotten separated from them while they were moving from camp to camp, but they find him again here, and he has a plan to escape that Marshall and Boldu initially go in on, but then Boldu has the bright idea of he can distract all the guards. That if he makes a big enough show of himself, he can be the distraction that lets the other two get away, and it'll be easier for two rather than three to escape anyway. And the reason that he comes up with this idea is the Empress of Russia sends a huge box to the Russian POWs who are there. And they're all so excited, and they like tell all of their friends who are French and English or whatever, like, oh, you have to come because the Empress has sent us a hamper, and we've got vodka, and we've got caviar, and it's going to be amazing. And they go and they open the box, 
and it's full of books. <laughs> and in fury, they set the books on fire. My favorite thing in that scene is that after looking at the books for a second, Rosenthal is the one that just casually goes, we should go. There's going to be trouble. And just <laughs> turns on his heel and walks out the door. And the, all three of them d- just like almost whistling, just like act casual, get the, get out of there right. before a riot starts like 20 seconds later. And that's what inspires Boldio's idea is that because they set all of these books on fire, the guards come in and are like, what are you doing? We have to stop this. Da, da, da. So he realizes that if you start enough of a ruckus that you can distract literally all of the guards away from anyone else. And had they been prepared, they could have just left during the book burning. But they weren't. Yeah. So instead they get prepared. And do this plan that when I think about it, I don't really understand why this is the plan, except that it's great on film. Essentially, apparently one of Renoir's favorite images was of the panpipe playing fawn figure which ends up in a lot of his films and this is sort of a nod to that while still being rooted in realism and not any type of fantasy the plan is they're going to give all the pow's flutes and then just all start playing the flutes at once to annoy the germans and then after they inevitably have all the flutes confiscated they're going to do a second concert, in quotes, where they just bang on anything they can use to make noise. And that is going to be enough of a ruckus that it is going to get a general roll call out in the courtyard and be this big distraction that they need when, in the middle of that roll call, Boldu is not down there for roll call and is instead up in the, like, I forget what you... I, I want to say rafters, but that's not what they are in a castle. But yeah, the rafters, sure. With a second flute, he didn't get confiscated. And it's actually the most badass thing I've seen in a war movie in a long-ass fucking time. They immediately undercut it in a lot of ways, but it is great. Well, and the fact that it still manages to be badass while he's, like, prancing around playing a little tin whistle... <laughs> Yeah, where he is just, like, doing this flute solo, and all of the Germans are freaking the hell out. And they all sort of chase him, which gives Rosenthal and uh, Marshall enough time to escape, but results in Raufenstein shooting Boldu, shooting him in the gut, so he... He gon' die. He meant to not. He confesses as Boldu is dying. The best part of that is the confession of, I was aiming for your leg, and then Boldu immediately just is like, that's all right, old sport. I get it. It was dark. I was, I, I was moving right. a lot, you know? I, like, yeah, it was, it was a, a, a hard shot to make. I was running. It was nighttime. I get it. Um, <laughs> and they then have... I think what in a lesser movie would be the last scene of the film, where they sort of have this conversation about which one of them is lucky, and that dying in war is a tragedy for commoners, but for them it's like a, a high honor that they aspire to. It's a good way for them to go, is is really exactly how he frames it, which harkens back to his discussion about the aristocracy is on the way out, 
this is an honorable way for that to happen. It is great because it is a scene that is true for them in a context where that is seen as meaningless. They are probably right within the context of their lives as fading aristocracy that like that's a good narrative to go out on. But also the whole movie is about how building narratives like that is dumb <laughs> or at least pointless. Right. And that tension is... I think really there in the scene, they hang on that scene after they have this conversation and then they write down time of death and then von Raufenstein has to stand up. Then life goes on. Like that isn't a big dramatic end of anything. It's the end of one man's life. And then somebody still has to get up and walk around for the rest of the day. Right. But then we cut to our two escapees, Marshall and Rosenthal and their having a bad time because they're trying to march 200 miles to Switzerland, which is the nearest border. It's cold and dirty. And they could barely smuggle out any food. They said two biscuits and six lumps of sugar a day was what they were going to be feeding themselves on. And that was before Rosenthal hurts his foot and the whole plan goes to shit. Yep. And this is the scene I'm specifically thinking of about the acting being so not 30s and being way, way later, is this big argument scene between the two of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where the two of them have this blow up at each other that is clearly as much about the fact that they are starving to death and not really in their right mind as it is about anything. Declare they're going to storm off and start singing at each other loudly as they're leaving and then trail off in their singing. And then Marshall comes back and helps Rosenthal up and they manage to find their way to a small farmhouse that they think is deserted, but turns out to belong to a German woman named Elsa, who does not turn them in and instead invites them in and kind of takes care of them. She has a daughter, her husband and three of her sons all died in the war. And that scene is really smart. That scene is really beautiful because she's got a picture of her husband and she, you know, points at him and says, my husband, Verdun. So, you know, that he died in Verdun and then points to another photo and says, my three brothers. And she doesn't name them. She just says which battle they died in. It's a really poetic and really beautiful and very moving scene that is very quiet and doesn't draw attention to itself. These are the facts. This is what war is like. But it then justifies why it is that she is not like being a good German Frau and turning in these French soldiers. It also puts a nice bow on the earlier stuff about the fort, which is the big fort at the center of the Battle of Verdun, that any other war movie we've watched would have had, you know, Marshall turn to the camera and go, that's where Fort Dumas is, and, like, bite on his index finger. Um, like, you know... <laughs> right, right. And this just, like, quietly lets it pass. That You know this thing you were cheering about in the abstract an hour ago in the movie? My husband died pointlessly in that battle. Anyway, here are my brothers. Right, right. And here are my brothers who died in three other battles. And all four of those battles were considered to be great victories for the Germans. And yet she's lost her entire family despite her country's victory. Which definitely goes back to the whole anti-war message of this movie, which is that the state may win, but so many people suffer that it doesn't make any sense to have a war at all. <laughs> and then you're in this small little domestic drama for like 15 minutes, 
where they build sort of this ad hoc family unit together with Elsa's daughter, Lottie. And they've sort of made an ad hoc nativity scene together. Oh, there's a really beautiful moment in this. Go on. And wake Lottie up in the middle of the night to show her the ad hoc nativity scene and to like... That the baby Jesus is come. Yeah. And celebrate with her. And like, it's all very beautiful, but it's also a thing where you're like getting to the end of the running time of the movie and you're like, we're really... Is this... Does the movie just end here? Um, Which is good. Is a good effect, I think. Yeah. But the movie spends a surprisingly large amount of screen time just sort of watching them build this connection with this random German woman and her daughter. And Marshall and her become nebulously romantically involved, but like... It's the code they fucked. They definitely were together. Uh, I mean, there's a point where Rosenthal asks him, you know, do you love her? And he says, I guess I'm, I do, which is like such a, such a beautifully French response. <laughs> but I want to go back really quickly to the nativity scene because this is one of my favorite moments in the whole movie is when Lottie wakes up and they show her everything and Elsa's like, you know, look, the baby Jesus. And Rosenthal turns to Marshall and says, one of my race. <laughs> and there's such a, a like lovely moment there because Marshall doesn't like make a stink face of like, hmm, yeah, I guess Jesus was Jewish. It's like, oh, they've now reached a point where uh, they have this kind of playful relationship around it. But that Rosenthal has not forgotten that Marshall has been anti-Semitic toward him and is, like, sort of latently anti-Semitic. Not even sort of. He is latently anti-Semitic. So he's going to take the opportunity to say, look, your whole religion is based on somebody who is like me. Generally, I think Rosenthal is a great character in this movie because... You watch him navigating that instead of being the big dramatic character that's going to solve anti-Semitism in a courtroom scene. That, like, you just kind of watch him quietly deal with the power dynamics of people around him being anti-Semitic. There is no Emile Zola-ing anti-Semitism here, or even, like, green-booking racism. There's actually something that we didn't touch on. When they come to the second POW camp in the castle, well, they've gone to multiple ones, but the second one that we see, there is a black French officer there who is apparently a quite accomplished artist because he has drawn all of these reproductions of very famous artworks like Botticelli's Venus. And he goes to take a piece that he's been working on to show to Marshall. And Marshall is just like, oh, get out of my face. Literally doesn't respond to him. Just pretends he isn't there. Yeah, just like flaps his hand to get him away from him. That to me was actually very interesting to add because in this time period where we have so many movies that are solidly white or there is literally one character and that character is a black servant or even slave, we have somebody who is ostensibly on equal footing because he has to be an officer to be in this POW camp, but he is still treated as unimportant and lower status than the other white officers. And I think the timing of when that occurs in the movie is also really important because it occurs after all the class consciousness scenes between all the other POWs um, that sort of lead you to this conclusion of like, well, here they're all united beyond the boundaries of class and it's kind of this classless Utopia, if only they would see. Nope, not everybody gets in. Yeah. No, it's actually not. It's the repost to the Bernie Sanders, like, 
class is the only thing that really matters argument, because clearly it's not. They are all technically of the same military class, but then discussing their differences in status in civilian life. And that like, oh, well, you know, all of that's breaking down because of the war. Ah, but racism is still here. (laughs) Yep. And he doesn't treat him badly. He just doesn't even see him at all. He's in the background of a couple of other shots, and he's just not included in conversations with the other POWs. That he's trying to reach out to them, and they are segregating him, even within the POW camp. Despite all of their highfalutin rhetoric around class-conscious philosophy, they're not even aware of how it is that they are being discriminatory toward someone else in their midst. Yes. Anyway, moving back to Elsa in uh, the little German house on the prairie. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Elsa and Marshall hook up. The music swells dramatically, as we said, and then we do a hard cut to this next morning where Rosenthal is talking about, like, hey, we have to leave. We can't just stay here. We're escaped POWs and we're trying to get back across the border. And Marshall can't tell her. Honestly, just beautiful acting from literally everyone in this section. Ugh. Where she is trying to remain strong about him leaving, but breaks down a couple of times, and he is very clearly trying to figure out what the right thing to do here is. Wants to go, wants to stay, doesn't really know what he wants. All of this is conveyed with very little dialogue and absolutely no, like, biting his hand and saying, what do I do? Eventually, the two of them do leave. And again, they have this long, lingering shot within the house of Elsa sitting Lottie down for dinner and the two of them just eating alone for a second before we cut back to Marshall and Rosenthal in the last scene of the film, finally arrive at the border to Switzerland. They sort of worry out loud about, like, is this going to work? Are we going to get caught by a patrol? Even if we don't, do we even want to be doing this? Because then we're just going back to World War One. Oh, there's that lovely exchange that they have where Marichelle argues they have to go back because we have to finish the war. Let's hope it's the last one. To which Rosenthal says, an illusion. Yeah. Back to reality. <laughs> yeah. And it's so throwaway. Like, that's what's so wonderful about all of these uses of, like, illusion and the great illusion in them, is it is not spotlighted every time, you know? They make a run across the border, are seen by a German patrol that fires at them, but then is told by the superior officer to stop firing because they made it to Switzerland. And then the last shot of the film is from a very long distance away, the two of them stumbling through the snow in Switzerland in what reminded me of a much better version of the end of Inception. They keep stumbling, they keep falling in the snow, and a couple of times I thought, like, did they get shot? But also just like, does it even matter if they got shot? (laughs) Yeah. There is a lot of movies I watch that end in, like, their future is uncertain, where I'm like, well, fuck you, give me ten more minutes of the movie. Right. You owe me that, and you just didn't want to make a longer movie. And this is such a good open-ended ending. They made it to what? In what condition? (laughs) To what future? For what purpose? Well, they made it. There's also something that is really elegant about the way that that is handled as well, where they don't have the last word. 
it's kind of one of those like out of the mouths of babes, but in this case, out of the mouths of soldiers who haven't been with us for the whole movie while they discuss the futility and the ludicrous nature of war. Right before this, Rosenthal says that frontiers were created by man because Marshall says doesn't look any different from where we're standing right here. And obviously the guns have a reach where they can be shot from wherever the guards are standing. And he says, you know, no, don't shoot. They're in Switzerland. And it's like, all of this is such fantasy. It's such a like make-believe bullshit thing that man has created in order to justify not just killing people, but reasons not to kill people. (laughs) Oh, they're one inch over this arbitrary line. Yeah. But our guns have a range of 30 feet. So, you know, (laughs) you can't shoot them. It's impossible. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the end. (laughs) Anyway, really, really, really good movie. And like, we didn't even go into the lighting in this movie. God, I didn't realize how much I missed like modern lighting. Oh, it's so clear. It's so clear. It's so dramatic, but not in that overly theatrical way good 30s lighting is. Yeah, it doesn't quite tip into film noir lighting. Like, it isn't hard with the shadows and everything as, like, Shanghai Express, for example. It's just subtly and beautifully artistic. I am sure it is because they are aping this movie that I have never seen, but it looks like a Jarmusch movie, or it looks like the black and white portions of Grand Budapest Hotel. Like, it looks that modern in its lighting scheme, and the way it's handling lighting. Also, did they just have better cameras, or is it that I watched, like, the restored Criterion version? Because I swear everyone's face is so much clearer. (laughs) I think that's about the restoration, I'm guessing. But the way they do camera moves in this movie is also like, we're going to get into that when we get to Citizen Kane and not too long. But like, this is so ahead of its time in camera movements. The way they let the camera go behind obstructions Mm -hmm. to give you a sense of the space is so brilliant. They pull out so well and so brilliantly. They do these sort of like rack focus zooms that are like, it's, it's, it genuinely feels like fucking time travelers were involved in the cinematography of this because it is, it is so far ahead of everything else we've watched. Another thing that I really enjoyed about it is that characters have certain eccentricities that make them more interesting and round out their sort of place in the world of the film without necessarily being plot devices. Like when we first see Raffenstein again at the castle after he has been horribly injured in the war. And we see his sort of like, I guess, manservant, who is also a soldier, taking care of his gloves and saying, you know, these are the only two pairs of white gloves that we have left. And Raffenstein says, you know, well, then we need to make them last out the war or try to make them last out the war. And he is so perfectly, perfectly presented all the time. Like, his uniform looks even better than Bourdieu's, who always looks absolutely perfect, down to he's got gloves on and everything else. But he's also got this metal brace that is all the way, like, it's on his neck, but comes all the way under his chin. In a very sort of, now what I think of as comic book way, like, almost, uh, like, Baron underbite. Yeah, it's it's a Baron underbite thing, but it's also I mean he must be one of the models for Baron von Strucker, like actually literally oh, one of yeah, the, like, yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah. like I I like 
just cannot believe that's not part of the reference board for that character. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But we find out that, you know, his fastidiousness, and he, like, puts perfume on before he's going to go meet the new POWs, and we see that through this sort of, like, cracked door. It's about keeping himself together and his presentation together and being able to be who he is in the face of feeling like his entire body has been taken from him and with it a large part of his identity. There's so many, God, there's so many smart, like, little moments in this movie. Like, when they cut to the German officers who are going to react to the flute plan, they kind of come into that scene a little bit early so that you can sort of hear the two of them have this dialogue where they're talking about how, like, Raufenstein's lost it. All of them kind of hate him. Right. And, like, just are sort of bitching about, like, if I was in charge of this place, like, I, technically I am in charge of this place and it would all fall apart without me before that guy just gets totally dunked on for the next, like, five minutes by the escape plan. It lends so many small moments of humanity to everybody that it's really, really interesting. It's a damn good movie. Yeah, it's, I I mean, should we rate this movie? Yeah, uh, I mean, can, am I allowed to give it a 10? I, I think you are. I am, I am leaning toward a 9 for complaints I'm going to get to for should you watch this movie, but I think that's a personal preference thing. I think a 10 is perfectly respectable for this. I mean, this is like, this is literally you gave Orson Welles two Desert Island movies and he picked this as one of them. And then he couldn't name the other one. <laughs> right. Like, and something and something else. Which is the most Orson Welles thing I've ever heard in my entire fucking life. Well, it would be The Grand Illusion and then something else, which I can't think of right now. But I would, t since you said I could have two, I'll, I would take another one. <laughs> Yeah, and, like, it's probably, like, because it's Orson Welles, he then, like, mumbles under his breath, like, Magnificent Ambersons. And then, like, <laughs> just, like, and then, but, but, like, yeah, this is so influential, and you can watch its influence in so much stuff. And it's influential because, God, it does so much stuff nobody has figured out how to do before now. Yeah. That, like, there is just so much in the acting, in the cinematography, in the God, we didn't even get to that great moment when they're touring the castle where the third guy that's with them keeps pointing to the architecture and going 12th century. Oh, the, the scholar fucking, guy. It's so good that like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And all he wants to do while he's there is translate some obscure Greek poet from the Greek because he's always been butchered in translation. Yeah. And that's like a, that's a character who has ludicrous and very specific, but very funny and charming eccentricities that are in no way relevant to the plot, but don't distract from it either. Yeah. The movie is just great. On an objective level, this is a great movie. It was compared a lot to All Quiet on the Western Front when it came out, which I totally understand because it is one of the few movies about World War One that is not like rah-rah patriotism or like, look at our planes. <laughs> I mean, this movie is very sympathetic to German soldiers. I mean, even before you get to Elsa, this movie is very, like, takes the time in the first POW camp to show you the German officers literally eating boot soup eating shoe leather soup. Right, yeah. Takes the time to go like, hey, also these people that our characters think of as villains 
are having a way shittier time than they are. What it manages to do really brilliantly, and apparently Renoir was inspired to make this movie because Hitler was coming to power in Germany at the time and was talking about annexing Czechoslovakia, and this was his reaction to it. So it manages to both sympathize the World War I German soldiers while having a very clear critique of what is happening in Germany to lead up to the forthcoming war. It is so much braver about anti-Semitism than anything else that we've watched. We've seen one or two other movies at least admit racism exists like this movie does. But I think on a like pound for pound level, like on a screen time for dealing with it, versus dealing with it level, the efficiency of the way this movie smartly deals with race from a 2019 perspective. I don't think any movie has been as efficient about it as this film is. And and I don't think that any movie has been as honest about it, because you have something like Imitation of Life, which literally is a movie about racism, wherein the white character who does so many racist things while being the white savior who like at least within her own home where her business partner she essentially robbed of her rightful percentage of the company lives in the basement is supposed to be lauded as not racist yeah (laughs) no she's racist (laughs) (laughs) i think it's a movie that looks at it honestly I think this is one of the saving graces of Alice Adams is that like it takes an honest look at what white people being racist looks like. And I think this movie does the same, but it also spends less time apologizing for our characters being racist than other movies like Alice Adams we've watched that really are honest about like, hey, these characters are doing that. But they're, you know, they they have other good things about them. They're okay. It's really, it's all right. Well, and it, it gives Rosenthal a voice, which Alice Adams doesn't. We don't know what the main character in Alice Adams thinks about what's happening to her. And we know how Rosenthal feels about anti-Semitism and about these little microaggression digs because he doesn't, he doesn't tolerate them. You know, he's not like, fuck you, you're racist, we're not friends anymore. But he will be like, oh, well, you say that, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, he directly addresses it when he can. He pokes at it when he can. And sometimes he just lets it go because there's other shit to worry about because he's a POW. It is a very interesting and honest portrait of dealing with racism. While it's not even actually the focus of the movie. Like, that's... Yeah. That really is the efficiency of it that you're talking about, is that it manages to deal with it very succinctly without it even having to be the focus of the film. Yeah. So, like, wow, everybody else really sucked at this. (laughs) And still sucks at it, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. This movie handles race better than Green Book. I know that's not a high bar to clear, but they had 80 years to clear it and didn't do it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, for me right now, this movie is unquestionably the movie to beat for 1938. And I realize that we have a capper coming up. So I'm not going to say like, there's no way anything is going to top this. But it is it is certainly number one among the movies we've seen so far for 38. For sure. And I think just to get to should you watch this, I am going to say almost certainly, but I am going to add the caveat of this is a popcorn movie for Susan. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> yeah, when I say popcorn movie, I don't mean that it is a Jurassic Park sequel. I mean, I'm loving it and I'm just going to like dive in and I need to have something shoved into my mouth that crunches. This is a black and white art film about war. And like it's very it- <laughs> quiet and has no battle scenes. And it it is probably the best black and white art film about war I've ever seen in my life. But it doesn't, like, fucking move. It's a meditation. Yeah. You feel that this movie is almost two hours long. And, like, not in a bad way, but in a, like, in a way where you're not, like, just throwing popcorn into your mouth and going, like, ah, has it been 30 minutes already? All right. So, like, if that's not your scene, honestly, maybe still watch it. It's really, really good. But, like, I I do want to say, like, this this is an art film. Oh, yeah, unquestionably. I, and it's an art film that I think is totally worth your time. And I, I wouldn't necessarily say that about every art film. I mean, I've now seen a lot of them. And there are certainly ones where I'm like, this is so proud of itself for being so deep. Yeah. This is not. And there's a lot of humor in it. There's a lot of really funny jokes and uh, sort of right out of the gate. One of my favorites in the whole movie is when Baldur and Marichal are first shot down and they're being searched for valuables. And Marichal says, oh, I didn't know we were coming or I would have brought something. <laughs> yeah. It is great, like, very wry humor for, uh, like, a lot of this film. I think I am just caveating that, like, you are still watching an art movie from the 30s. And, like, that brings with it some stuff. I think if I was not watching this as part of this project, I would be a little bit less high on it. (laughs) I mean, that's true of so much. (laughs) Yes. Like, I would still go, like, this is a great film, but I would also say, like, this is a great film in the context of, like, we've had 80 years to make great movies, and some people have, like, figured out this movie's tricks by now. A lot of the stuff that is genuinely astounding about this movie is astounding from a film historical perspective. Again, I don't want to talk down it too much. I think you should watch this movie, but it is meditative. It is slow going. Or it can be for parts of the running time. Yeah, it's not Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Yeah. Like, it is a a very quiet, very subtle meditation on class, as well as the futility of war and the absurdity of the nation state, etc. But, you know, if you want to watch, like, a movie you can't believe has flown by that's a meditation on class, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town is the one to watch. But I think you should watch this because it's fucking great. It's really good. Yeah. So next week. Next week is going to be something that is probably not. Yeah. Next week is Alexander's Ragtime Band. A deep meditation on war. No, I'm just kidding. It's a musical. It is a musical (laughs) that traces the history of jazz while ignoring the existence of black people. I was about to say, starring three white people. Yeah. So uh, (laughs) we will probably not have this type of podcast next week. Yeah. Though I bet we'll talk about racism. Yeah, I bet I bet it'll come up. Yeah. Uh, and until then... This was a great film. Yeah. This was a great film. Uh, goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Marcelise, please.